Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Personalization Outbreak Podcast. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the future of talent management and how you can create a value-based job search. See, we're seeing more and more companies moving away from the traditional approach of finding and hiring employees. They're now looking for people who can bring value to their company, not just qualifications and experience on paper. Now, our guest today is Catherine Minshew. She's the founder and CEO of The Muse, a career platform used by over 75 million people to find their best fit jobs, companies, and careers. Now, Catherine is also a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of the book, The New Rules of Work, The Modern Playbook for Navigating Your Career. Now, together, we're going to be talking about the future of strategic talent management and what this means for organizations like yours. Now, before we get started, please click the like button below, share it with your colleagues, and subscribe to our YouTube channel and social media at Glenn Yopis. Let's get started. In today's rapidly changing world, it's more difficult than ever for organizations to keep up. That's why I'm excited to invite you to the Navigating Uncertainty Summit on October 14th at Clemson University. You'll learn from the most innovative thinkers in a day of inspiration and make cross-industry connections that will help you adapt to the modern world. Register now at 2022summit.ageofpersonalization.com. The 2022 season of Personalization Outbreak Podcast is brought to you by City of Hope, a world leader in the research and treatment of cancer, diabetes, and other life-threatening diseases. City of Hope has been ranked among the nation's best hospitals in cancer by U.S. News and World Report for over a decade. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Catherine, welcome to the show. I am so happy to have you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Well, very good. We appreciate it. So, Catherine, after doing a little bit of digging, I'm curious about one thing in particular about you as an individual. I mean, first it's McKinsey, then work that focused on vaccine introduction and healthcare infrastructure in Rwanda and Malawi, to now career management. How has your journey shaped you as a leader? as a person, and as someone who is now guiding the career choices for the next generation? Well, you know, I, I, I love the way you framed it, because I think that um, I've been there, right? I've been in the position of not knowing what I wanted to do with my life or, or with the next year. I've, I've been in the position of trying to figure out who I am and how does work and career and professional identity fit into that. And I think that 
that kind of eclectic background that I have is a big reason why I started the muse and, and why I love it. Right. You know, I, um, you started with, with McKinsey, but when I think about my winding career journey, it starts even earlier. You know, I was probably 13 years old when I decided I know what I'm going to do with my life. I'll be a state department official, you know, an ambassador or a CIA agent. And I, I thought I had it all figured out. And, you know, years later, I majored in political science, learned multiple languages. I did all the things on my kind of little type A checklist. And I walked into what I thought was the job of my dreams. And I realized, like, I don't think I actually like this. I don't think this is actually right. And, you know, that that really sparked a journey over the next several years that led me, as you said, to McKinsey and Company in New York, you know, vaccines in Rwanda and Malawi. I've I've sampled a number of things. I've lived little slices of a number of potential lives. And ultimately, I just became so fascinated with the question of how do people decide what they want to do and how do they make those decisions again in the context of what's right for them, not what their parents did or their friends are doing or looks cool on television, but truly what matters to you and how do you architect a career that is aligned with that? Um, I love that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Keep going. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it's such a, it's a beautiful problem. It's a hard problem because I wouldn't say that everyone knows what they want. And, you know, companies haven't always made it very easy to understand from the outside. What is it truly like to work here? Um, And, you know, I think it's, we're in such an interesting time right now when so many of the rules of work are being rewritten that I, I just absolutely love um, kind of standing at this intersection and getting to be part of helping, you know, these next generations make those decisions and helping companies really wake up to the benefits of bringing their people in, in a more transparent, authentic, respectful manner. So it's, it's not the easiest problem to solve. I'm definitely still on the journey, but, um, but I think it's one with a lot of meaning to me. Well, I, I love how, how real you were in that response. And one thing that grabbed my attention was this notion of helping people architect their careers. And, you know, look, back in the day when I started my career, um, I think the the pathway was already uh, created for me. Now, in this age of personalization, we're fighting against those old outdated standards where your career was almost predetermined for you uh, based upon your socioeconomics, uh, based on your education, uh, your upbringing, your parents, but today it's changed. How do you begin to guide one's architecture of their career? Now, I know that maybe you might want to jump on this. I mean, I know that at Muse, you guys pioneered this concept of values-based job search. Does that have something to do with it? Yes, absolutely. You know, I think that um, if you don't know what you want, it's hard. It's harder to go and get it right. And so we recommend that everyone starts their career search with a little bit of self-reflection about what truly matters to you. And that can be very uh, kind of tactical things like, um, you know, I want great compensation, fully covered health care, paternity or maternity leave, et cetera. And that can also be more intangible elements like um, I want to do work with meaning. Um, I want to work in an environment where people prioritize treating each other with kindness and respect. Um, You know, I I never want to be bored. I want to be in the fastest paced, 
most cutting edge job imaginable. There are so many different careers and companies out there, but they are very different. I actually liken it to dating where, you know, there's, there's a million different personalities, a million different people. Most of them are not going to be a great fit. That doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. In fact, I think thinking about companies as good or bad sort of obscures the point, which is that companies are unique collections of individuals with very strong you know, expectations, cultural mores, values, ways of getting work done. And so for an individual, if you can understand what matters to you, how you like to work, which factors or attributes or values are most important to you, you can go out and find it. And so one of the ways we've done that on the Muse is you know, making a company's benefits and a lot of their attributes searchable. So we are the only job search site where someone can say, you know, I'd like a front end engineering position with maternity leave at a veteran founded or led company. Great. You can find those on the Muse in a way that you can't in other places. But then we've also wanted to go much further past the things that are, you know, structured data, searchable data, and also really give companies a way of communicating their culture, their work environment, their employee experience, not only from the kind of perspective of HR, but truly in the words and voices of their employees who are living that experience day in and day out, and then making all of that information, data, and content available to candidates so that they can, you know, get a sense for the texture of a place. It's funny because I think, you know, as I've been building the Muse, a lot of people in the HR and career space they're fascinated by the science of it all. They're like, all right, what are the three things everybody wants? Or what are the you know, four factors that make someone a good fit? But there is also an, a kind of art component. It's the left brain and the right brain, uh, right brain. Sometimes people will you know, hear an employee testimonial and think to themselves, yes, that sounds like what I want. Or frankly, it's great when the alternative happens and they're like, ooh, I really don't think I would be happy at that place. Fantastic. I think that we are all sort of hurt by the idea of this one size fits all workplace where, you know, you just have to look for the highest comp and that's all that matters because all jobs are interchangeable and they're just not, that's literally not true. And so, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that technology is allowing us to see the differences between companies, between teams and workplaces, and then allowing individuals to make a much better match. Catherine. That alone makes one think. Mm. And it's a few things. One, you've made me feel as if the resume is becoming obsolete. Number two, you've, you've now made me feel even more concerned about the role of talent management when they're asking you what people want from their job. How do you envision this whole role of talent management? I mean, help us reimagine it because are you doing the work for them or how do they how can they best how can this function evolve to truly maximize the benefits that come from someone like muse it just seems to me that you are so far ahead of the <laughs> curve and that can be a great thing but it also can be something that can't be fully valued if the person or the people on the other side don't know what to do with it. Yeah. You know, it's um, I think that the, the best relationships we have with companies and employers are a partnership, but you're right. The, the function of talent management, talent acquisition, it is massively in flux right now. And sometimes that's great for us. And sometimes that is a huge challenge. And so, you know, at the risk of going a little too big picture, 
I think that one of the things that's really important to understand is if you go back sort of pre-1980s, there was what a lot of people call the golden age of capitalism, where you know workers were treated as an asset, not a liability. And there was a sense that your team was your greatest asset. And I think we have in parts of the US economy, we lost that for several years. CEOs would still say, you know, our people are our greatest asset, but really a lot of businesses functioned like employees and HR were purely a cost center and that all people were interchangeable, workers were interchangeable, and that, you know, you could just sort of pay someone the minimum competitive level, they'd show up, clock in, clock out, et cetera. Um, as a result, a lot of HR departments and talent teams, especially if you go back, you know, 10 plus years, were built in a, in a, you know, a fairly back office way. They were also, um, they were measuring their success in a very transactional way. You know, how cheap and how quickly did we get a butt in the seat? But like all people are not the same. All roles and all companies are not the same. And so over the last, I would say five years in particular, um, I have been witnessing and, and I like to think driving a kind of massive change in the way that, that companies think about talent and that professionals in talent think about their own jobs and their own goals. And so one of the things I get excited about now is a lot of the best companies today, they're not just looking at, you know, cost to hire and time to hire. Those are, those are two important metrics, but they're also looking at retention of that hire. Did we get the right person? Um, some of the best companies are, you know, they're looking at the kind of success of teams and of uh, departments and saying, you know, do we have the right skills? Are we investing in our people and keeping them? And I think that is, I mean, that's obviously so core to what a business like the Muse does, because if all you're trying to do is get the absolute cheapest possible applicant or cheapest possible hire, you will make different decisions than if you're looking to make the right hire or build the right team. And, you know, I do think, frankly, when I first started this company, that um, I think we were kind of on trend with the candidate and the job seeker. We've had an incredibly just positive reception from individuals and from job seekers since day one. But I think we were way ahead of the curve on the employer side. Um, I can't tell you how many times the business almost died because, you know, we would have companies saying, well, you know, why should I invest time and money in this process um, if, you know, I could buy an applicant for $2 cheaper from somewhere else? And finally, by the way, we were able to prove that an applicant from the Muse was literally three times as likely to be hired as an applicant from one of these other quote unquote cheaper sources. Turns out buying the cheapest possible lead is not necessarily the best answer in marketing, in talent, in, in almost anything. You, you've got to look at what is your goal and is your goal getting a butt in the seat? Is your goal getting a cheap applicant? Is your goal getting the right hire? And so, you know, I think talent and HR is very much still on this journey. I would say most of our customers are still looking at cost per hire as a primary metric, but they're talking about quality. They're talking about retention. Um, and that's something that's really important to me, you know, both within the Muse and also just me personally in, um, in how I think about the impact I want to have, because I do think it's hard to, you know, it's, it's hard to build a great team if you are overly focused on, you know, cheapest applicant, cheapest hire, and not on getting the right people in the door. And by the way, the great resignation has massively accelerated the conversation around this. Because when I started working, when you took a job, it was pretty much expected that you were going to stay for at least two years. Even if you hated it, if you were unhappy, there was a very, very strong um, kind of social prohibition against quitting. 
Well, that has changed. We did a survey of uh, millennial and Gen Z job seekers, and 80% of them said it was perfectly acceptable to leave a job in under six months if it wasn't as advertised. Now, you can have whatever opinion you have about that stat, but the reality is that many job seekers will leave if they join your company and they don't feel like it's the right fit. And so this is, you know, in a, in a way that I think is going to be very positive for the industry, it's forcing talent teams to think about retention, to think about transparency, um, and to, to do a better job of bringing in the right people, not just, you know, whatever warm body happens to be cheapest to get through the door. Well, what you're validating um, is the need to lead in the age of personalization. Because here's a few things that you basically said that we need to move from environments that promote tribalism and start seeing people as human. What you basically said is that a, a company's mission can't be more valued than one's contribution to it. What you also said is we can't have these, pre, uh, these prescribed approaches to how we measure outcomes. And we have to take the time to experiment and find different ways to solve things through a lens that's been different in how we've incentivized decisions in the past. So what you're really talking about here is a transformation of a department, let alone a function that's based on value, not just volume. This is exactly what the healthcare industry is doing. This is exactly what's happening in other areas of corporate America. The insurance business says we can't be transactional. We have to be consultants. In the software industry, we can't just sell software. We need to show in our clients how we can create new opportunities for them based on our software. So you're turning the model around. This takes time, but I'll tell you, your timing is perfect because based upon what you said, if we looked at all the decisions that an organization made based on cost alone for hire, I wonder if they would hire those same people again. What do you think? Yeah, I think you would see companies in many cases making different decisions. And, you know, it's exactly like you said, with this value over volume. I think it's so interesting to look at, you know, in, in industry after industry after industry, um, people start with these very transactional, very standardized, very lowest common denominator approaches. And right, it makes sense that that's step one, because if you are doing something new for the first time in an industry, people often revert to something that is very easy, very simple, very straightforward. But generally speaking, over time, you find that that, that doesn't actually work as well as a more sophisticated approach. And so, you know, I, I love how in marketing, for example, a lot of my friends who are in e-commerce, marketing automation, you know, they're looking at not just how they bring leads in, whether those leads transact, but do they become great customers over time? What's the lifetime value? You know, what's the average order size? There's all of this additional data. And I think we're seeing the same thing happen in talent where companies are realizing, first of all, we need to look at the lifetime value of an employee. You know, a lot of our of our customers, they actually lose money on a hire who doesn't stay at least nine months. That exact uh, kind of time where someone, where a new hire switches over from having cost more than they generate varies a bit by company. But generally speaking, um, you need someone to be retained for a certain period of time to justify the amount of time and expense recruiting them. And so a lot of businesses are saying, well, wait a second, you know, how do we ensure that the people we bring in stay? Hmm, maybe we should be more authentic and transparent about what they get when they're here. 
because employees who feel surprised um, or upset by the work environment and the work conditions they find are generally less likely to be happy, productive, successful, and retained. And so, you know, I do feel like I've been waving this flag for a little while. I think the last year has been the fastest acceleration that I have seen. Um, but I am so excited to just be part of this industry at this moment in time, because I think if you solve, if you can solve the relationship between an individual and the organization team where they work, um, you know, it, it benefits Frankly, it benefits everyone, right? The organization gets a more productive, more successful, better retained employee for the individual. You know, we we all know the difference between how we can show up for our friends and family and pets and kids and spouses when we are reasonably happy and engaged in what we do versus when we feel, you know, undervalued, uh, disrespected or, or just plain stuck. And um, it's not that every job is going to be sunshine and rainbows every day. Of course, it's not going to be. No job is. But um, I think that we can move towards better matches, better alignment. And part of that is information. And a big part of that is personalization. Like we're talking about this realization that not everyone wants the same thing. Not every business should look or sound or offer the same things, but that by creating the right connections or the right matches, you can, um, you can create much better outcomes across the board. And you know what else you can do? You can finally begin to measure inclusion. Let me explain. See, here's why your business model, I think, is so breakthrough. It's become less about the business defining the individual and much more about the individual defining the process towards a shared mission. Your, your model is about helping an organization find the right balance between those two forces. The former, um, I meant the latter, standardization, the former, personalization. And that's what you're trying to do is. Your, your, your model is a guide to transform how talent is viewed to be part of the change versus an individual who's hired to be told what to do. And that's why oftentimes when people experience change management, people often look at themselves and, say, and they say, well, that must mean I'm part of the problem. And what you're trying to do is get people hired that can actually be part of the solution to get out in front so that there is no need to go through a radical change and transformation effort. This is the difference between volume to value, and people have to pay for it. And if they don't, they'll continue to find the old standardized cycles of people in, people out. Old job descriptions that mean nothing today that did 10 years ago. I personally don't care if someone has 30 years of experience. I want to know what you can solve for today based upon today's business climate and or industry climate. So on that note, let's close by asking you, the, you this question. If you were going uh, to propose a set of new hires for an organization, um, but you had to reimagine the job description and the reward system for that position. How would you walk uh, an, a recruiter, uh, someone in talent management through that process? Because the truth is, this is where you're going. You're taking people now through an exercise of reimagining not just who they hire, but why they're hiring for a certain job. What would you say? Yeah, um, well, there's a couple of different elements I would think about. 
Um, typically speaking, the first place I always start is with your current people, because I think that whether you want to make massive changes or minor tweaks, it helps to really start with a grounding of where you are today. And so I would probably in partnership with that recruiter or talent leader, set up a process of collecting insight from the folks currently on the team or at the business. Um, and specifically, I'd be interested in what's working well today from their perspectives. What do they love or what do they think draws people in or keeps them at the organization? What's not working so well? What are the things that are frustrating? What are the reasons that people don't work out? When people leave, what do they say in exit interviews? There's a lot of ways to collect this. You can do it through anonymous surveys, focus groups. Obviously, I think exit interviews, I just mentioned them, but they can be very useful. But I would start with this grounding of, you know, what are the, what are the opportunities and the challenges? I think businesses then need to make sure that the opportunities and the benefits get trumpeted, that people know this is what we're really good at. This is why you should come here. And if this attracts you, if this excites you, we might be a great place. And then I think you should look really honestly at those challenges and divide them into a couple of categories. One category is um, this is true about us today, but we really don't want it to be true. So let's come up with a real plan to make change. Let's communicate that. Let's hold ourselves accountable, give frequent updates. This is a lot easier said than done, but you can move a culture. And part of this is hiring, which I'll talk about in a second. There may also be things that are on this challenges that you say, you know what? We can't change this, or we're not going to change this right now, or we don't want to change this. And for those, I think it's important to communicate those in the hiring process as part of, and by the way, I've just told you about some of the things that are great about our team, great about our business. Here are some of the things that some people might find challenging. Here are some of the things that you should know about before you join. I think candidates appreciate that transparency. And frankly, if that's gonna be a deal breaker, you would much rather find out right now. And you'll be surprised to find in, in my experience that there are a portion of candidates with every problem and every candidate pool that say, hmm, yeah, either that's fine or I can help solve that or I'm on board with coming in and, and making, you know, being part of that transformation or accepting that this is going to be a, a challenge. Um, people say yes to hard things all day, every day, but they like to know what those are before they opt in. Um, and I think then once you kind of zoom out and you look at the current state of things, then you have to, to really be honest about um, where do we want to go from here and how far is reasonable. If you have, for example, a very legacy business mired in a lot of bureaucracy with a very slow pace of change, then trying to immediately go out and recruit people who are used to high velocity, frequent change and experimentation, go, 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 cutting edge, that may be too much for an organization to bear. But could you go and say, hey, um, we are looking to become these things. We are here um, and we want to bring in people who can help guide us and coax us and move us forward because those people, again, those people exist. Um, but I think it's that clarity and the more specific you can get. Um, and, and again, the more grounded in reality I find the more likely you are to bring in, again, the right people. Now, does it sometimes take longer than being like, we're an amazing organization where everyone loves to work. We just high five all day, every day, and you'll have no problems. Yeah, it might take a little bit longer, but are you ultimately much more likely to build a successful team that accomplishes what you want to accomplish with enough retention to actually let you grow and learn and build value? No question, absolutely no question. Um, and I think that's why, by the way, that uh, executives outside of talent 
have to be more thoughtful in supporting their talent and HR leaders. And now you have to make sure you have the right people. You want to be making sure you're tracking success, but this sort of laser focus on get me a butt in the seat fast. It doesn't allow for a lot of the work required to get the right people. Uh, Let's face it. Everyone's in the HR business today. I mean, it's not just the HR department. Um, I've often been told by the executives that my organization works with that, unfortunately, HR department doesn't always support them, even though they have good HR business partners. I mean, you have to understand the business and what the business and the skill set requirements are. And oftentimes, we just don't know them because we've never performed them. So there's so many different layers. And I love what you basically implied in your response. Help people understand what the challenges are just as much as the opportunities, because people want to create opportunity. And this is what we don't hire for. Did you ever take a class, Catherine, in opportunity management? No. Did (laughs) you ever? No. That's what we're all really trying to find are people that know how to solve and create opportunities for organizations. It's not just about problems and solutions, it's about opportunities and closing opportunity gaps. And I believe that what you're doing is going to help organizations get there. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated you today. And you keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I'm on your side. Amazing. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed being here and uh, can't wait to see the episode when it's live. You bet. Now, as we always close, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't. Do what others won't and keep pushing when prudence says quit. See you later. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution. Learn more about City of Hope at cityofhope.org.